about missions. I, I've appreciated the service so far. It really has gone perfectly with what I have to say today. I, I appreciate the heart of Pastor and his family. Uh, it's great to see a family serve together. It's a real encouragement to me. Um, so, what is the purpose of my message for you today? I want you to understand that each individual Christian has the opportunity and privilege to intentionally pursue missions. I'm going to say that again. I want you to understand that each individual Christian has the opportunity and privilege to intentionally pursue missions. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is writing to a young Timothy. He is pastoring a church. Paul has much to share with him about Timothy's future and what he's going to see. I'll be reading, starting to read in verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And then down in verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have of coming together this morning. I pray that you would bless uh, the teaching and preaching of your word today. I pray that you would work among us uh, and you would show us what you would have for each one of us as we seek to share the gospel with friends, loved ones, co-workers, uh, those that we meet in the streets, at the airports, and those that we have the opportunity, even if we go abroad, to share the gospel with. We'll thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's words to Timothy, they give us the impression that Paul understood crisis, and he wanted Timothy to be assured that he need not be afraid. Now, most of us remember the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, and the images that went across the airwaves. We saw the buildings burning. We saw people running from the Twin Towers, people screaming, people crying. Amidst all of that chaos and debris, the image that sticks in my mind the most is that of the firefighters, the policemen, the paramedics that were all rushing to the crisis. Why? Because they had people that needed to be saved. Lindsay Whitehurst published this account on July 18, 2022, detailing a far different scenario. Quote, A total of 376 officers converged on Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, more than the entire police force in a mid-sized American city like Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or Tempe, Arizona. But for more than 70 minutes on May 24th, not one stopped the shooter. Amid the sounds of a continuing gunfire emanating from the elementary school, they waited. By the time they entered and killed 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, 19 children and two teachers were dead or mortally wounded. Waiting costs lives. And we see that waiting costs lives. If we're going to be effective, we have to run to the crisis and be willing to breathe the air of crisis if people are going to be saved. One of my favorite scenes from the miniseries Band of Brothers, it follows Dick Winters of Easy Company of the 2nd Battalion, 
506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which was part of the 101st Airborne Division. Winters gives the command to his men to fix bayonets. On order, they are going to charge an enemy position. They didn't know how many enemy were there. It was a crossroads. They knew the Germans were there. So when the signal came, Winters, he was in great shape. He was anxious. He took off and he went out ahead of everybody else. And so the scene shows him running across an empty field. He comes up over a rise. And when he comes over the rise, he sees a German soldier. And then he sees other Germans uh, holding that position. He begins firing his rifle. I'll come back to that story in just a minute. Now, because I'm a student of war and I love reading stories about heroic achievements, I've tried over the years to imitate some of these individual actions. So years ago, my youth group went on a paintball war. And so the youth leaders, they decided they were going to take on the boys of the youth group. And so there was a bunker on one side. There was a lot of different obstacles in between, a bunker on the other side. When the whistle was blown, you were supposed to go and take the position and, and wipe out the guys on the other team with the paintball guns. And so I talked to uh, the youth leaders, and I said, look, I've done a lot of paintball wars. I know how this goes. Everyone is afraid to get hit because paintballs hurt. And so they're going to be slow coming out of that bunker. So when that whistle blows, if we run and we get to their position first, we'll have them surrounded. We'll be able to take them right out. And they said, that sounds good. It's like a good plan. Whistle goes off. I charge ahead. I'm dodging around all the different things. I get behind a small wooden barrier about like this. The bunker's there. And just as I thought, they hadn't come out yet. The first guy comes. I fire my paintball gun at him. And within no time, I am shot 24 times. As I looked around, there was no one else with me. And so I go to the back, the battle ends, we lose. And I say, guys, what happened? They said, well, we were afraid to get hit, so we stayed in the bunker. Okay, alone I was no match for the opposing team, obviously, and staying back because of fear did not help the team win as we still lost. And many times over the years, my company or my team on the mission field has been comprised of just my wife and kids. I want to tell you a story. So I, I mentioned in Sunday school, we came back for a short furlough in 2019-2020, and we got stuck in the States because of COVID. We couldn't go back to Zambia. We weren't able to enter into the country. And so uh, we've been gone for about eight months. We returned home, and Four days in, we were invited by one of our missionary friends over for dinner. They wanted to be a help to Kathy. Since we had just returned, they wanted to provide a meal for us. So we went over. We were there for about three and a half hours. Power comes and goes in Zambia in that part where we're at. And so the power was off. And so we were running the generator at our friend's house. And as we leave, we're driving home. The city is dark. It's a city of over 450,000 people. And so we get home and we live behind a brick fence. We had glass on top of the, the wall fence. We have a gate we have to slide open in order to drive in. And so we slid the, uh, Paul, my son, was with us at that time, so it was Kathy, Paul, and myself. He slides the gate open, and our two Rottweilers are waiting there, and they're very agitated and anxious, which is not very common for them. So we thought, this is strange. It's pitch black. 
We drive down the driveway, I go to the front door, we have bars on all our windows, on our doors, with padlock on the front door. I unlock the front door, and as I go in, I can see with my flashlight on my cell phone that the house is a mess. Uh, there were empty, like, um, supermarket plastic bags on the floor, the refrigerator door is open. I knew that we had been broken into and our house had been robbed. So I head through, to the back door, unlock it to turn our generator on so I'd have power in the house so I could see what is up. I do that, and at the same time I'm thinking, I have my 12 gauge pump shotgun loaded in my bedroom. I'm gonna go check that first to see if they got that. As I go through the house, they've been everywhere. They, they had had enough time. They probably entered the home soon after we left, so they had probably three hours to be in the house. So when I got back to the bedroom, I saw right away that the shotgun is gone. They had taken it. My thought hits me. I don't know if they're still on the property. They have my loaded shotgun. There's three bird shot, two buck shot. So the first three are warning shots. The last two are, you made a mistake by sticking around. Um, so I'm thinking, Paul, where's he at? Is he outside now that this guy has a loaded gun? And so that fear strikes my heart. But right as I think that, Paul enters into the bedroom holding the shotgun case. He says, Dad, they got the shotgun. Um, it's not in the case. And I said, where'd you find that at? And so I go out the back door. The two Rottweilers are there. So I knew there's nobody in the backyard because no one's going to be around with them. My dog, the biggest one, his name is Chance. I named him that because you have only one chance when you come into the yard. Um, so it was surprising that someone could get in. What they had done they, at the top of the property, it's about... Uh, 70 meters, 70 yards from the top of the property to the bottom wall. They were probably feeding our dogs some food of some kind at the top. They came over the bottom wall. So we come around. You can see things strewn through the yard. So I got the impression that the dogs had figured out that there were people there and they were leaving in a hurry. When I got to the place where Paul said he had found the shotgun case, uh, I could see that's where they had entered and exited the property because there was stuff around. I turned around and the shotgun is laying right on the ground under the bush. So obviously they're not going to leave that there if they could take it. So Chance, I believe, uh, had a good taste of, of at least one of them before they left the property. Um, I tell that story because, uh, you know, since then, every time we come home, what do I think about? I think about that. When you're violated, when you're robbed in that way, there's been dozens of circumstances like that that have occurred uh, to our family in the last 17 years on the field. Now, when I face a crisis, I typically do not even think of the risk when I'm alone. But when my family's in the middle of it, I can tell you those have been the hardest times. As a husband, as a dad, I can tell you I want to protect my family. I want to make things better, but sometimes that's just not possible. You never see the image of a firefighter putting on a fireman's suit onto his kid and the two rushing together towards an inferno. Over the 17 years we've been in Zambia, the, as I've said, they've been filled with one crisis after another, kids in tow, facing the conflict, breathing the same air of crisis as dad. It's a true statement that a missionary lives in a world where they continually breathe the air of crisis. We've learned this past week uh, you here in Maine more than anyone else, um, that safety is a mirage. John Piper wrote that in his book, Risk is Right, 
The fact is we live in a broken world. Many who choose not to serve the Lord on a foreign mission field because of fear, missing the point, they face risk all around them every single day. So with whatever you choose to do, whatever you think, well, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, the fact is that risk is here. So don't be afraid of serving the Lord. Don't be afraid of giving the gospel to someone that you meet on the street, that you meet at an airport, because they may laugh at you, they may make fun of you or whatever. Risk is right. Safety is a mirage. The Lord has promised to be with us. Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, prayed this, Father, make me a crisis man. And he willingly gave his life so that others could be saved. The missionary willingly charges to the front of the fight. We run to the trouble when we see it. That's who we are. I've learned that I'm just not that effective of a fighter when I'm alone. Like I said, unlike a firefighter or a policeman, we charge in the crisis carrying our family in tow. They also have to gear up. They also have to breathe the air of crisis. A missionary does not wait. He charges ahead to face the crisis. He is not alone because the Lord is with him. But he's more effective if he has a band of brothers and sisters that come to assist or who are back at home manning the supply line. I want to ask you a question. You've had a missions conference um, not long ago, had other missionaries come in. You support many missionaries. Do you take the time to pray for the missionary wife and the missionary children? Do you really understand, have you thought about the fact that they are breathing the air of crisis, they have no choice to be there. Uh, my kids, when we went to the mission field, they were age 6, 8, 10, and 12. They had no choice. They were going with mom and dad. And so they were going to come. Uh, we have faced eviction being thrown out of our home uh, via gunpoint. Uh, like I said, we've been robbed. Uh, we've been sick with typhoid, dysentery, malaria, uh, you name it. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, the kids didn't have a choice in that matter uh, at all. Uh, they were there. Are you praying for your missionary wives? Are you praying for the missionary kids? I hope you are. Now, my kids are all grown up. They're out of the house. They all live in the USA. And recently, I was asked to do a roundtable for GFA missions. Uh, it's a Zoom call. People can come in and watch. And so the round call, the roundtable was called, Is Risk Worth It? And so they sent me a list of the questions that would, they would go over during this roundtable. And then we've, we'd answer those questions, and they'd look at what the missionaries that were part of that roundtable, you know, which answers they really like for that specific question, they would call on you for that. So I, I looked through the list of questions, and they were really good. And I thought, you know, they sent these to me. They didn't send them to my wife. They didn't send them to my kids. I, I would interested in how they would answer these same questions. So I sent those questions to my kids and asked them to fill it out and asked them, was the risk worth it? You didn't have a choice to go. You had to come with mom and dad. Was the risk worth it? And each one said, though it was tough, they'd gladly do it again. That they had a better childhood than anyone they knew. <laughs> Now, unlike my paintball experience when I found myself all alone, surrounded by the enemy, uh, getting shot 24 times with bloody welts uh, on top of welts, as a missionary, I've never felt alone. Uh, with God, I'm always in the majority. Uh, for me, former Army Ranger Jeff Struker, he was at the Battle of Mogadishu, 
famous for the book and the movie Black Hawk Down. He wrote in his book, The Road to Unafraid, when you have the support of Jesus Christ, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I remember when Paul was in trouble and felt alone in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10. This is what was told him. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Fear should always breed trust and hope for the Christian. Always. We prayed for a teammate to join us in the eastern province of Zambia for more than 10 years. The Lord has seen fit to answer that prayer through giving us a great missionary community, though not a teammate with GFA, like what I was thinking would happen. Missionaries from other organizations came to live in our area. And so that has afforded us the opportunity to have other Americans of like mind that we can have birthday parties with. We can celebrate the 4th of July. We can get together for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve, shoot off fireworks. We could have a cup of coffee together. And though again, they're not teammates. Uh, they've been a great blessing to us. The other thing that we didn't anticipate has been teammates through short-term missions. Short-term missionaries can give a helpful can give and do give helpful and necessary support. And we've seen amazing fruit from the teams that have joined us. And I want to go back to the story I was telling you, World War II, Dick Winters, Easy Company. Now remember, he's out in front of uh, his men. He's on the top of a rise. He has now fired two clips from his rifle. He's reloading just as in the scene his men come behind him with machine guns, mortar, other rifles, and they begin pouring fire down on the enemy. And within a short amount of time, they're able to defeat the enemy uh, with the allied forces that are with him. Easy Company became known as a band of brothers. Where one man went, the others were sure to follow. Dick Winter's tagline was, follow me. I love that. Uh, wherever he went, his men were sure to follow because they loved his leadership and they knew that he was going to lead them in the best way to make them as successful as possible. Years after this event, Dick Winters was speaking to one of his grandchildren, and the grandchild asked him, Granddad, are you a hero? And his response was, I'm not a hero, but I've served with a company of heroes. Now, since we arrived on the field 16 years ago, 17 years, we've hosted over 300 visitors, including 18 teams, two homeschool teachers, three interns, several others who stayed with us for an extended period of time. They have been that line of brothers that comes up behind just when the fighting gets the fiercest. Remember, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Medical Missions provides a vehicle for the advancement of the gospel by drawing large crowds of people that otherwise might never darken the door of a church. As you saw in the presentation, we've hosted 11 medical teams. We've seen over 10,000 people come through to get treatment. We've been able to share the gospel with each one of them. We've been able to extend the life of people that otherwise may have died to give an opportunity to give the gospel to them at another time. So when those crowds come, what am I trying to do? When they're at registration and we're sharing the gospel, I'm trying to put a stone in their shoe so that they think about their own belief system and they say, you know what I believe is not right. And so when 
They may leave there and not trust Christ, but they're going to think about what they've been told. And maybe they'll return. And we keep doing these things, and we see them over and over again. You saw the funeral. There's thousands of people that come to a Zambian funeral. If someone dies, everyone goes. And so I have the opportunity to share the gospel with people on a consistent basis that get to know me. Everyone knows Pastor Beeman and his white Land Cruiser. When I come in, uh, we have a great reputation because we love the people. We help them in so many ways. And so when they, when they have a need, when they're hurting, when they, they think about their spiritual life, they want to come to us. I was Chief Manukwa is the chief of that area. There's, over, there's almost 20,000 people in the Manukwa kingdom. When I came back from our COVID furlough, he said to me, Pastor, I was really concerned about my spiritual life when you were gone. I want to make sure that I'm all set. Uh, can I talk to you about that? What an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with someone. Over time, uh, you're able to uh, tell them something and they accept Christ as their their savior. Now, I'm not sure if the chief's a Christian, but I know he's searching, and that's our desire. We allow the Word of God to work in the heart of a person as the Holy Spirit convicts that person of their sin and convinces them of their need of a savior. Now, let me ask you this Are you willing to be a crisis man or woman for the Lord? Maybe you're saying, I'm not convinced. What I've heard so far makes me think that missions is just a life of trouble. Now, that's true. But we run to trouble because, as Paul said to Timothy, I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The psalmist echoes the same in Psalm 37, 23, and 24. Listen to these words. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall... He shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. And Psalm 46, verse 10 and 11, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And this promise in Matthew 19, 29, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Is the risk worth it? Breathing the air of crisis on a continual basis obviously seems pretty hazardous, bad for your health, right? Now, the first year I was working in the village, I was getting to know the language, getting to know the culture. I would drive out to the village on a consistent basis, many different people. I'd go to the chief's palace, meet leaders there at the palace, drive around the area. I passed a local clinic. I thought it'd be good, good to get to know these people. So I went into the clinic in the Manuka area, and I met Jolly Mtonga for the first time. Said, look, I'm going to be starting a church in Chijezo. I'd love for you to come to our Bible study. I'd love for you to come to church. His wife, Leah, was actually the head clinic officer there, and I talked to her as well. She had a very sour demeanor, didn't want to talk to me about it, but I invited her. So that was 2013, 2012, 2013. So years go by. I continually see Jolly, stop by the clinic. When we'd have a medical team, if we had medicine left over, I'd go to the clinic and donate medicine to the clinic, see Jolly and say, hey, we have the church at TJ's, I'd love for you to come by. He'd never come. Nice guy, his name Jolly is totally how he was. Uh, he was a jolly, happy guy, but he wasn't interested in church at all. So in 
2018, we had just started MUMA. We started Bible study in May, and then in September we finished our little pavilion there before we built the church site and we had our first medical team. And so we were using that medical team to draw people to that area so they knew that that church site was there now. And so as we were going out to clinic each day, we'd pass the local clinic. And so one of the doctors on the team said, hey, Todd, you know, we're obviously holding a clinic there. I would think that the local clinic would have more stuff, more means to helping people than we would. Could I stop in and take a look at the clinic and just see what's up? Because there's no one there at the clinic, but there's all these people waiting for us at the church site at MUMA. I said, sure, you can go see. So we stop in and he sees, it's very rudimentary. Uh, they, they are knowledgeable. They often don't have the medicine provided by the government to help the people. And so uh, Jolly is there, his wife Leah is there. We meet them. The doctor actually gets a picture with Jolly. We invite him to come out to church. Uh, we're going on our way. Jolly doesn't come. 2019 rolls around. The U.S. Embassy contacts us and says, we're coming out to the Eastern Province. We'd like to meet up with the Americans that are there. And so one of my missionary friends is like, wouldn't it be cool if we told them the address to come to was our church sites out in the village? And so they would come see what we're doing, and we could give the gospel to these guys working with the embassy. And I said, sure. So I went out to Muma on that day, uh, knew they'd be passing through. So when I reached there, Jolly Mtonga is at the church site. He had heard that the embassy was coming, and so he wanted to talk to them to see if USAID would help build a maternity ward at the clinic. So the, the village grapevine is amazing, uh, how they can figure this stuff out, but he knew they were coming. So the embassy comes, they look over our church site, we talk to them, and Jolly goes up to them, talks to them about uh, his plan. They weren't really interested at all. They go on their way. And he's kind of discouraged about it. And I said, you know, Jolly, for years I've been doing medical teams here in the village. You've never come to our church, never come to any of the village teams. I, I, would, love, I would love for you to come to one. Come to our Bible study here at MUMA on a Friday. Come to church on a Sunday. And so uh, he leaves. Friday comes around, Bible study, and Jolly's there for the first time. I preached the gospel, and I could tell when I was sharing the gospel with Jolly that he was under conviction. Sunday comes, Jolly's there. Next Friday, Bible study comes, Jolly's there. The next Sunday, I get done preaching, and Jolly raises his hand. He's, he's 65 years old, getting ready to retire from the clinic, and he says, I'd like to say something to the church. Typically, I don't allow anyone to do that because there's all kinds of crazy things people will stand up and say. And so, uh, but Jolly is a man of respect and honor. And so I thought, well, let's just see what he has to say. Uh, what harm could there be? And so he stands up and he says, all of you know me. I've worked in the clinic for a very long time. And I, you know that I use my power and authority over women. And I have 17 children from many different women uh, because of that position that I had. He says, I've had as many as five wives, but now I only have one. And I want to tell you that I want my legacy to be different. Uh, I have trusted Christ. I'm going to be a new man. I'm going to be a one-woman man. And I want my life to show something different uh, after I retire. It was an amazing testimony. I didn't know what he was going to say. And I, I, I was just... So thankful. And so Jolly continues to come. And he's, he's like, you know, not enough people are coming to church. Pastor, what can we do to get more people to come to church? Could we have like a, 
you know, uh, give a prize out to whoever brings the most visitors or something. I said, sure, we can do that. So typically what I do when I give out prizes, they, they wash their clothing in the river or at the borehole where they have a hand pump and they use what's called green bar soap. It, it, they'll cut it and it'll look like a bar of body soap and they you rub that on their clothing to wash their clothing. So I'll give out like a green bar uh, to people. So that's what I was going to do. Whoever brings the most visitors, I give this washing soap to them. So uh, we have that visitor Sunday and of course Jolly brings the most visitors. He's now using his job at the clinic before he retires to invite people to come to church. And every time we would do that, Jolly would win. It's just the way. But his wife, Leah, again, sour demeanor, didn't want to come. I wasn't interested. And I, I'd say to him, Jolly, it'd be really nice if Leah would come to church. And he says, she won't come, Pastor. I said, well, uh, now that you're a Christian, you need to get baptized. We have a baptism class coming up. When you get baptized, invite your wife, invite your friends, family to come. I think they'll come uh, to watch your baptism. He said, that's a good idea, Pastor. I'll do that. And so that was in November of 2020. Or, yes, November of 2020. We had just returned. And so um, he gets baptized. His wife comes to church. Uh, several friends, family members, and things. It was really neat to see. He retires in December. And he says, Pastor, I want to give the rest of my life helping you with these medical teams. I want to come to be a part of that, to be able to assist. You saw pictures of several Zambians that were helping us, nurses helping us during the clinic and such. So that's what he wanted to do, to be able to uh, interpret, be able to tell the doctors that are coming from the States, these are how we treat things here in Zambia. These are the type of medicines we use and whatever. And he said, that's what I want my legacy to be. I want to be remembered for that. And we had two upcoming medical teams in 2021, so I'm going to be a part of that. So in January, Kathy takes my youngest son, Paul, home. So we become empty nesters. She's in the States for a month getting him settled. And I go to church on a Sunday. And after I preach, Jolly says, can you come to my farm, my garden after church? I want to talk to you. I said, sure. So I go to his place and he has a thousand tomato plants that are growing. He said, Pastor, my son, Sonoya, just finished his med medical degree to be a nurse. In order to practice, he has to buy his medical license that costs X amount of money. Would you loan me that money? And then when I sell these tomatoes, I will pay you back. And I said, Jolly, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I made a policy. I can't loan money to people uh, in the church because if I loan money to you, I have to loan money to everybody. And I just am not capable of doing that. I'm one guy. And he said, Pastor, I understand. I, I know the Lord will provide. It's okay. I leave. I go home. Four days later, I come down with COVID. Uh, I am sick for three weeks in bed. Just weak, can't do anything. And Jack Mitchell with uh, GFA Medical Missions contacts me uh, near the end of this time. He says uh, in his email, Todd, I had a team that was going to Lebanon. It had to be canceled because of COVID. We cannot get into the country there. I know we're already coming to Zambia later in the year, could we come to Zambia in three weeks and do the medical team with you? Again, I am, I've been in bed, I'm sick, I'm tired, what do I say? I say, yes, come ahead. Because when the Lord does something like that, you don't say no, you say bring it on because the Lord's going to do something amazing. So I immediately text Jolly and I said, look, we have a medical team coming in three weeks, I hope you're ready. His wife texts me back and she says, Pastor, uh, my husband is very sick. 
So I contact the people out in the village and they say, yeah, he's been really sick. We visited him. He's not doing well. So I call Asan. I said, let's go out and let's, let's see Jolly and see how he's doing. So I arrive at his home. Leah meets me at the door. We sit in their parlor. Jolly walks out and he was a dead man walking. He was very uh, light in color, pale, uh, weak, had lost so much weight. He probably got COVID. Maybe he was the one who gave it to me. Uh, he got it at the clinic uh, there in the village. And so he sits down and uh, I pray with him and read some Bible verses with him. And he says to me, Pastor, in a very weak voice, says, Pastor, I hope to help you uh, when the medical team comes. His wife, Leah, looks at me and says, if my husband's not able, I'm going to take his place. I want to do that for you. And so, again, we pray, say goodbye, and that night I get a phone call that Jolly had passed away. <laughs> I can tell you, <laughs> I have never cried harder. This man had changed so much in such a short period of time, and he wanted his legacy to be different because he had been such a wicked man and had power over people, and he wanted his life to be changed and different so people would see it. And now he's gone. So his funeral came. There are thousands and thousands of people who came because people knew him that had worked with him. I was able to preach his funeral, share the good news with all those people that were there. Um, he being dead yet speaketh. It was an amazing opportunity. Jack Mitchell comes with the medical team. I arrive out there. Leah and her son, Sonoya, are there. I said, Pastor, we're here. We're going to help you with the team. Now, the team comes in on a Sunday afternoon. We start the medical team on Monday, and then it goes through the week, and they have off on Saturday and Sunday. We come together at the church service, and everyone who helps us is not, not a part of our church because I need interpreters, and I don't have a lot of English-speaking people. So we may have Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, others that are working with us to assist us from the community. One of my requirements is that you have to come to church on that Sunday if you're going to help us. And so on that Sunday, I get up to preach. Leah and Sonoya sitting in the front row. They're at church. I preach the gospel, and I could tell that they were under conviction. Again, just like Jolly when I was preaching. Uh, it's, if you've ever studied about the Great Awakening revivals, that's the way Zambians are. When they fall under conviction, it's so different than here. You can see it. It's, it's just such a, they're, they're emotional people. And so when I got to the end, I don't always have a, show of hands of who wants to trust Christ because everyone wants to go to heaven, uh, but not everyone wants to change. Everyone wants to repent. But in this case, I thought I want to do this because I can see that there's movement in the audience. And so I asked for a raise of hands and, you know, heads bowed, raise hands, and Leah and Sonoya were two of the group that raised their hands. So then I showed them how to pray the sinner's prayer and we prayed. And afterwards, after the service, I went and sat down next to Sonoya and Leah, and I used a bridge track, and I, I just wanted to make sure I went through it uh, with them. And it truly was a what-must-I-do-to-be-saved moment for both of them. They trusted Christ. Amen. That year, I baptized five of Jap Jolly's family members, his wife, Leah, four other family members. Since then, I've, I've baptized many, many more. Leah has helped us in every medical team that we've done. She took her, she took her husband's place. That week, uh, Sonoya was working with Dr. Dan Dalhausen, and Dr. Dan just loves Sonoya. 
he was just so impressed with him. And he says, is there something I could do for Sonoya? I, I just really have a burden for him. I said, well, he needs his medical license. And I w I'm not able to provide the money for that because it's just against my policy. It's hard for me. But for you, you're getting on the airplane and going home. He said, I would love to do that. And so he, he gave Sonoya the money for that. And Sonoya helped us with several of our medical teams. Now he's working in an area where he's working for the government. He's not able to get off to help us with that. But I can tell you, Leah is a woman totally transformed. A woman of sour demeanor is now one of the sweetest ladies. I was sent pictures and video this morning by Dan and Asan. They were at Muma, and I could hear Leah singing uh, in, the, in the service. She's there. She's become the chair lady of our trustees for the women's side at the church. She's always at church, uh, always there. And so I, I share this because the night we were robbed... The next day, I went to church, and that was the day Jolly said, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian pastor, because we had just got back from our COVID time, and he said, All the, for eight months, I've been afraid that maybe I wasn't a Christian. And so I sat down with him, and I, I went through the good news, the, the, the God's Bridge to Eternal Life track, and then he came back on a Sunday and said, yeah, pastor, I, I'm sure. But that's the reason why we're in Zambia. That's the reason why we're willing to breathe the air of crisis. You don't know how long it will take you don't, for someone to be convinced of their need of a savior that it's worth the effort. This next year, I'll be hosting two medical mission teams, two building teams. Camps Abroad from the Wilds is coming. We also have two individuals coming for an extended stay as well as several others. Our door in Zambia is always open. I'm asking you, Pastor, come back to Zambia and breathe the air of crisis there. Maybe the Lord has Clinton, Maine as your mission field. Are you taking advantage of that opportunity? The door may be open to another place. Are you willing to go? Everyone here can pray for missionaries. Do you take the time to pray for the wife and children of the missionaries you support? Everyone can give towards missions. Recently, I was at a church. They're sending a building team over, and one of the ladies, she's afraid of coming to Zambia. She said, wouldn't it just be better for my husband and I to go? It's like $7,000 for us to go on the trip. Can I just give you the money, and you can use the money that way? And I said, yeah, you could do that. But you're taking away two aspects of giving. All of us can give of our time, our talent, or a treasure. It's easy to give of your treasure, to put the money in the offering plate. It's a lot harder to give of your time, and it's a lot harder to give of your talent to go on the mission field. Are you willing to do those two things? And I told that lady that. I'm hoping she'll come. We'll see what happens. Do you take the time to get to know your missionaries? I know Pastor does. He contacts me, I don't know, once every two, three months, whatever, wants an update, ask me for a video update or whatever. I appreciate that. Uh, not every church does that. It's a shame, but that's the case. I love your little board out there where you can look up your missionary and see what's going on. Uh, take the time in the age of social media to get to know your missionary. If you don't know what I'm doing, you're not paying attention because I put the, uh, the information out there. 
Have you ever been to see a missionary? Gone to a foreign field to get a small taste of missions? I hope you will. Maybe the Lord's calling you to full-time missions. Are you willing? In our first couple of years on the mission field, my daughter Emily, after facing several trials, she couldn't sleep. As I mentioned earlier today, we'd been evicted from our home via gunpoint. Our stuff thrown out on the street. Had to find another place to live. Uh, we'd been sick so many different times. Uh, different missionaries had their homes broken into. Uh, one lady, they came through her bathroom window. She was sleeping, wrapped her up in her blankets, beat her with a stick, told her not to move, and stole everything in the house, took off out the window. Another missionary, they came to her door with a guard, said, if you don't open the door, we're going to kill them. She opened the door. They broke her arm uh, with a pipe so that they would get money from her. So Emily, I had heard all these stories, seen these people uh, up face-to-face, -face, saw the people come onto our property, 40 people throwing our stuff out on the streets. For a nine-year-old, that's a lot. Um, she had called me that morning. I was at the Bible college. We were having a prayer meeting, and I was sharing uh, with the people that we had just fired our maid because she... Uh, was stealing from us. We came home, we had left the property and came back real quick because we had forgotten something and we saw her going out our gate with stuff in her hands. We we're like, okay, uh, you can't work for us anymore. And so we fired her. She went to a witch doctor and placed a curse on us and placed a curse on our workers. And she told then the community about it. And so people shared that with me. And so I was sharing that prayer request and I was kind of laughing it off. I got a phone call from Emily Daddy, there are men with guns at the house. Okay. So this is what she had been dealing with. She couldn't sleep. Um, as I said, I can deal with that. But when my kids are dealing with it, what do you do? I can't change it. I can't fix it. And so I really prayed about it. Because she, night after night, come into our room crying. And so I remembered Psalm 56.3 and... I, the Lord laid on my heart to write a poem for her that I printed out, laminated it, and had her put by her bed. I'll read that poem to you now as I close. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee by daddy. When I grow weary and worn, new fear each minute born, of distant, of distant country I yearn, yet too far to return, I will trust in thee. When in the night gloom settles in, silence brings a garish din, in terror does my heart sing, no one near to cling, I will trust in thee. When in shadow tremor, in this I must remember, none his love can sever, his eye is on me ever, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had together. We thank you.